You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. Hello and welcome to the 1962nd edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk for the 18th of January 2024. The editor of this edition is myself, Graham Parley, the producer is Peter Rayson and your readers are Jane Johnson and myself, Graham Parley. We should also mention our processing team who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. We commence with the headlines. Call for change to signage to reduce HGV traffic congestion. Theatre. We will have to find savings if £100,000 is cut. Sizewell level expansion set out in roadmap. Zero carbon condition on incinerator bid. Call for change to signage to reduce HGV traffic congestion. A road signage error on a key interchange near Sudbury has prompted calls to use the opportunity to implement changes to help divert traffic away from the town's most congested roads. Town Councillor Steve Hall has urged Essex Highways to amend a newly installed sign at the Borham Interchange by directing traffic into Sudbury via the A12. This differs from the current version which instead directs drivers to the town via the A131. The issue came to light last week after motorists shared images of the sign on social media to highlight an unrelated issue, the misspelling of Chelmsford without an F. Essex Highways apologised for the mistake and confirmed a replacement would be installed as soon as possible. But Councillor Hall told the Free Press... The authority should take the chance to revise the signage. He is also writing to the town councils in Sudbury and Halstead for their support. Off the back of past joint meetings with the highways agencies of Suffolk and Essex in recent years as part of the strategic lorry review. The two councils have previously raised concerns about traffic congestion and pollution been exacerbated by heavy goods vehicles, HGVs, which are often diverted along narrow roads in both towns. If they travel via the A131, Mr Hall explained that the benefit of sending HGV traffic via the A12 instead as they would approach Sudbury from the side of the industrial estate. In doing so, they would avoid the most congested streets near the town centre, such as Cross Street, a known problem area for pollution. It makes much more sense to bring traffic up the A12, along the A143 and straight on to the industrial estate, rather than along Ballington Hill and through the narrow roads, he told the Free Press. It would avoid hold-ups and congestion, and it also reduces standing pollution. It's not good for HGVs to travel slowly, because if they are constantly braking, it creates brake dust. 
Where we can push traffic to the outer edges, the route might be slightly further, but travelling at speed. It has surely got to be better, or at least an equal journey in time, but with less congestion and pollution. I've represented the Town Council at meetings with Essex Highways and Highways England. One of the things that came out of those joint meetings was that the signage at the Boreham Interchange was changed to remove Sudbury from directions along the A131. During the maintenance on the A12, they removed the directional signs for the A131 to Sudbury, but because this new interchange has come in, they have totally ignored that, and they are directing people towards the A131 again. The new interchange has not changed the previous position, Mr Hall added. The Free Press has contacted Essex Highways for comment on the matter. At the time of going to press, the authority had only stated that it is replacing the sign at the Boreham Interchange to amend the Chelmsford spelling error. However, it has not yet confirmed whether any further changes will be made to the sign's directions. A Bury St Edmunds Theatres programme could be streamlined if Suffolk County Council Arts Funding cuts go ahead. The Theatre Royal in Westgate Street stands to lose £100,000 per year as the County Council tries to make £64.7 million in savings. This week the Theatre said, whilst the County Council funding was earmarked for its community engagement projects, its loss would force bosses to scrutinise the organisation across the board to see where savings could be made. It fears it could have to streamline its original in-house productions and other programming. Owen Calvert-Lyons, the theatre's artistic director, said, £100,000 is a lot of money for us. We will have to look across the whole organisation and look at where we can make savings. We subsidise our in-house productions as we know how important they are, not only to audiences but to the arts economy of this area. They provide employment, but if we are in the position where we have to operate an entirely commercial model, we won't be making those productions. We won't be able to do things like last year's subsidised production of The Wizard of Oz. At the same time, the loss of funding could impact the Theatre's Art Council National Portfolio organisation status, which was reinstated just last year. Owen said the Arts Council was careful where it spent its budget and traditionally invested where it could see evidence of local support and investment. There is not a direct correlation. We won't definitely lose the Arts Council funding, but it is a concern, said Owen. Ironically, Suffolk County Council played a big role in us getting the Arts Council funding and helped us to achieve that. Suffolk County Council is proposing saving £500,000 by stopping core funding to art and museum sector organisations across the county. The theatre said the County Council funding was used for its community engagement programme. Losing that funding might mean we have to do much less of it, said Owen. We are very passionate about supporting our community and working with those who are most vulnerable. But if we don't have that money there we will have to find savings. We have an extraordinary important role in our community and provide life-changing opportunities to children and adults. The thought of not being able to do that makes me really sad. 
Owen said people who engaged with theatre were known to engage in more physical activity and have improved well-being. The benefit of the theatre to the community is not always obvious. If you remove it, there is a danger. People are more likely to call on statutory services such as the NHS. I see our services as being one that prevents people using those other services and that makes it very short-sighted thinking to cut our funding, he added. Meanwhile, world-famous actress and theatre royal life patron, Dame Judi Dench, has added her voice to a growing number against the funding cuts. Dame Judi said she was deeply shocked the theatre could have its funding stopped and added, The removal of this support is heartbreaking. Regional theatre is the foundation of British theatre and its place in our lives must be protected. County Council Bobby Bennett said, While we very much value the work done by the arts and cultural sector, we must focus our limited resources on the services where we have a legal duty to deliver. Size world level expansion set out in roadmap. Government is planning huge expansion of the UK's nuclear energy fleet with a new plant in the scale on the scale of a sizeable sea in the mix. It is setting out what it describes as the biggest expansion of nuclear power for 70 years in its civil nuclear roadmap with a new power station as big as Sizewell Sea or Hinkley Sea and small modular reactors among the ambitions. The aim is to quadruple nuclear power output in the UK by 2050, taking it to 24 gigawatts, GW, or a quarter of the UK's electricity needs. It aims to explore the big new gigawatt power station like the two next-generation nuclear plants capable of powering 6 million homes apiece, which are at different stages of development. It also says it will also invest up to 300 million in UK production of the new fuel required to power high-tech new nuclear reactors known as HALU, which are currently only commercially produced in Russia. Ministers are planning a nuclear energy hackathon to come up with ideas on how to accelerate new nuclear projects. The announcement comes in the wake of a period of severe energy insecurity which followed the Russian invasion of Ukraine as a means of bolstering the UK's energy independence, it said. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak said nuclear energy was green, cheaper in the long term and will ensure the UK's energy security for the long term. Energy Secretary Claire Coutenhall said it would help power Britain from Britain. Nuclear Industry Association and Trade Union Prospect welcomed the roadmap. But anti-nuclear campaigner Alison Downs of the Stop Sizewell Sea campaign described the plans as vague and said they rang hollow when Hinkley Point C is already at least three years late and £8 billion overspent and faces a significant funding gap and Sizewell C is still some way off a final investment decision. Neither Sizewell C nor anything else in this roadmap will help the government meet its target of decarbonising the electricity system by 2035. 
making nuclear an expensive distraction that we'll all have to pay for during projects, protractor construction, she added. Zero carbon condition on incinerator bid. A unique condition has been imposed following a developer's incinerator bid. After an environmental permit has had been issued for a controversial incinerator on the outskirts of Beckles, firm conditions have been added in what is claimed to be the first of its kind. With plans for the small waste incineration plant, otherwise known as SWIP, to be operated by VC Cook Limited at Ello Industrial Estate near Beckles, approved by Conservative-controlled Suffolk County Council in May last year, despite numerous objections and concerns over the area becoming a rubbish tip for the region. An environmental permit was issued by East Suffolk Council following consultation. And further details of the permit issued for the incinerator that would generate energy from waste have now emerged. A spokesman for the Green Party said, in what it believes to be an unprecedented legal move, Green-led East Suffolk Council have insisted that the developers of a controversial new incinerator in Suffolk will only be able to operate it's if they can show it doesn't contribute to climate change. It is thought to be the first time that a council has put such a condition onto the environmental permit of an incinerator developer. Without an environmental permit, the, per the company can't legally operate the plant. East Suffolk Council leader Caroline Topping said, There have been about 900 local objections to this plant with very real concern about both carbon and other emissions from its chimney and from the lorries supplying it. Up to 1,250 homes are planned to be built nearby. Unfortunately, the decision to allow it to be built has already been made by the Conservative-controlled County Council. All we can do is put firm conditions on the permit. We're not anti-business and we follow the law about permits, but we're making the permit tougher than any regulator has ever done before. We know we may be taken to court for this, but we're confident we're doing what's right and we're willing and ready to prove our case. And now we're going to move on to some general items. Farmers turned thoughts to season opener. A parade of more than a dozen tractors caught the eye in Bures at the weekend in honour of a traditional New Year's celebration. Spectators lined the streets to witness the village's first ever Plough Sunday tractor run to coincide with the annual occasion marking the beginning of the agricultural seasons. The procession set off from St Mary's Church at approximately 11.30am following the conclusion of a Plough Sunday service. Organiser Valerie Sayer said it was the first time they had held a tractor run to coincide with the event and had only expected five or six participants but ended up with 18 tractors. It went off very well, she said. We are surprised by the amount of people who came out to watch. Everyone who turned up said how much they enjoyed it and they wanted it to go ahead again next year. There were quite a lot of children there as well and they loved it. A dedicated expert of the occupational therapy profession has said it was a lovely surprise to be put forward for an OBE in the New Year Honours. 
Denise Christie, known as Dee, from Bardwell, will be made an Officer of the Order of the British Empire for services to occupational therapy. Occupational therapy helps people live their best life. Dee, 71, who is retired from paid work, is chair of the Elizabeth Casson Trust, whose purpose is to advance the profession of occupational therapy and support the development of occupational therapists. Dee has been an occupational therapist for 50 years, working as a clinician, service manager and leader with her niche in social care. Of her OBE, Dee said it was lovely to have the recognition and a lovely award for the profession in many ways. It was a lovely surprise, said Dee, who moved to Suffolk after she retired. To be honest, it's a lovely way to start 2024. I celebrate 50 years in my profession this year, so it's sort of a bit of a double whammy for me. As a young woman in 1970, Dee could have worked for an airline as ground staff, but her nan persuaded her to go into further study. So off I went to look at what I could do, and I found occupational therapy. If I'm honest, I probably didn't know what it was when I started training, but it was great. She started off working for the NHS, but said she realised she hated hospitals and moved into social care in around 1977. I worked for a London borough for a long time and just loved it because it gave me the chance to think about rehabilitation for people in their real life setting, she said. Dee worked at West Sussex County Council, where she managed and led a wide variety of community services for 27 years until her retirement in 2014. Highlights of her career include being appointed to set up a brand new occupational therapy service at West Sussex County Council in 1987, chairing a NICE guideline committee on intermediate care and receiving a fellowship from the Royal College of Occupational Therapists in 2022. Naomi Hankinson, Vice-Chair of the Elizabeth Casson Trust, said, Occupational therapists are often the unsung heroes of health and social care, so to see a dedicated, creative expert who has put years of service into raising standards for people receiving occupational therapy acknowledged is truly lovely. A new TV series with connections to Suffolk and starring BAFTA-winning actor Austin Butler is being released at the end of the month. Produced by Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks, Masters of the Air tells the true story of the Bomber Boys of the American 8 Air Force, known as the Mighty Eighth. Alongside Butler, the show also stars Barry Keegan, Ben Radcliffe and Nakuti Gatwa, who is the new face of Doctor Who. In what was dubbed the Friendly Invasion, the east of England became home to over 350,000 United States Army Air Forces personnel. Ruffham Airfield, near Bury St Edmunds, was the home to the 94th Bomb Group from June 1945 until December 12, 1945 who flew more than 300 missions with the B-17 Flying Fortress. Donald L. Miller's book, on which the new series is based, includes the story of Brigadier General Frederick Walker Castle. On Christmas Eve 1944, he led a team against communication centres and Luftwaffe fighter fields. His plane experienced engine problems, and realising the hopelessness of the situation, Castle took the controls to give his crew time to escape. 
Castle was posthumously awarded the Congressional Medal of Honour. To coincide with the release of the Apple TV series, St Edmundsbury Cathedral in Bury St Edmunds will display the 48-star American flag that was given to the cathedral on April 29, 1945 by the United States Army Air Forces. It will be the first time the flag is displayed to the public. Bury St Edmunds Tour Guides has also created a new guided walk on February 13th and March 12th. The hour-long walk will bring to life the buildings and places that contributed to the war effort or helped raise the morale of servicemen and women during the World War II, including the Royal Observer Corps Operations Room. Masters of the Air will be released on Apple TV on Friday, January the 26th. Fence concerns cause delay to village dog park decision. A decision on whether a new dog park can go ahead in a village just outside Newmarket has been deferred, despite winning the backing of local councillors. The proposal for a field just off Fordham Road in Freckenham was due to be decided by members of West Suffolk Council's Development Control Committee when they met on Wednesday. It has been recommended for refusal by Planning Officer Amy Yule, who said the 1.8 metre high perimeter fencing suggested by the applicants would have an adverse impact on the character of the landscape because it was a highly visible site. Councillor Dave Taylor, who represents Freckenham on the District Council, wrote in support of the application. The fence is by no means an eyesore and I believe it would blend in with other fencing along the road. The project would seem an excellent use of the land that will not be used for crops. Members of the Parish Council also supported the application. The latest clerk to Bury St Edmunds Town Council has begun settling into her new role. Jodie Budd, 47 of Long Melford, has taken over from Greg Luton, who retired last month. Jodie previously worked at Sudbury Town Council for 28 years, starting as an office administrative assistant. Jodie served in various roles, including as an advisor at the former Sudbury Advice Centre, and her most recent role being deputy, deputy town clerk there. She said, I'm very honoured, this is a natural progression for me. Bury is a lovely town, so I'm honoured to be the new town clerk. I love the variety that comes with local government. You get new bosses every four years that come in with a different eye. It's just the variety of work that goes on behind the scenes that members of the public don't see necessarily. During her tenure, she hopes to promote the Town Council even further. The Town Council is quite hidden away, so we'd like to revamp our website and social media pages and just become a little bit more community-minded, she added. Working with Town Councillors, I would like to increase the mayoral role a little bit and just reach out more to the community. In Sudbury, we used to have competitions with local schools, like designing Christmas cards for the mayor. Council willing, the big thing is to become more community involved. It's quite a blank canvas at the moment. She would also like to write a business plan that she and the councillors can refer back to. On the future of the town, she said, 
with burying now getting Primark, is going to be the town centre that's got everything. It's just going to grow and grow. Whereas places like Colchester and Ipswich, that have taken some of the big department stores out of town, there's not such an appeal as maybe there will be to come here. I hope it's going to thrive, which I think it will. The lifeblood of the Bury St Edmunds Society is our membership. We are a charity run by volunteers and we encourage membership from all who care about our growing town, its heritage, environment and want to have a say in its future. From almost day one of its existence, the Society has provided a social calendar of events, some free of charge and all subsidised to some extent. The new year heralds the very popular winter lunch. We strive to provide something different every year by way of entertainment or a guest speaker. In 2021, Charlie Haylock provided a lively insight into his work as a Suffolk dialect coach to Ralph Fiennes in the film The Dig. Last year, Charles Garland regaled the guests with tales from his years working as a production assistant on the popular and timeless Dad's Army TV comedy. This event is always oversubscribed and February 2023 saw the largest gathering so far with around 90 of our members and guests at the Southgate Community Centre. Two or three times a year, we also organise excursions within and just outside of East Anglia. We strive to provide something a little different and arrange for our members and guests to visit places that are not always open to the general public. A prime example was a tour of the historical Ersham Hall, hosted by the owner and followed by cream tea in the house. This coming summer, we have negotiated with the National Trust for us to visit their textile conservation workshop adjacent to Blickling Hall in Norfolk. The National Trust only allows one or two groups a year to visit, as obviously it is a distraction from its vital conservation work. Apart from our varied social calendar, we interact with our membership via the Bury Society Review. This is a colour magazine that is distributed three times a year to our membership. It keeps them up to date with what is going on in the town, even those things that are behind the scenes or at the planning stage. The review contains a host of short articles and back issues are available on our website. Website and social media activities keep members and the wider public informed, often featuring some of those articles which would normally remain unseen due to lack of print space. We try to reflect all age groups, societal changes and needs in an ever-changing Bury St Edmunds. If you would like to comment upon local issues, to meet other people, to be kept up to date about changes, to receive the Bury Society Review and to take part in our events programme, then you should consider joining us. For details of the Society and membership, see our website www.verysociety.com A historic postbox was stolen from a road in Bures. The Victorian or Edwardian postbox was removed from Nayland Road at some point on either December the 12th or 13th. Police also believe it could be connected to the theft of two urns from a front garden in Stoke by Nayland. Anyone with information should call 101, quoting the crime reference 37 forward slash 74803 forward slash 23. I'll repeat that. 
That's crime reference 37 forward slash 74803 forward slash 23. A public meeting is set to be held in a Suffolk market town to discuss the impact of Storm Babette, what has happened since and what can be done in the future. Framlingham Town Council is arranging the meeting which will be held at Castle Community Rooms in the town on Sunday, January the 21st, between 3pm and 5pm. More than 70 homeowners in the town were affected when Framlingham Mere burst its banks during heavy rainfall on October the 20th. Roads became impassable and cars were submerged in the brown water that engulfed the town, forcing residents to find alternative accommodation. Subsequently, local authority, sorry, local charity, our community, set up the Framlingham Flood Appeal to help replace possessions lost during the flooding, including bedding and curtain poles. By December, the appeal had raised more than £30,000 while a separate government flood recovery scheme administered by East Suffolk Council has also provided £500 grants and council tax reductions to 73 flooded residents, totalling £36,500. Businesses in the town were also badly affected, with the owners of shoe shop Castle Shoes in Albert Place, revealing in November that more than £60,000 worth of stock had been lost, after becoming covered in mould and sewage from overflowing toilets. Meanwhile, the town's post office, just a few doors away, was initially faced with being out of action for four months when the brown water flooded its riverside premises. However, subsequently local shopkeeper Bill Bolstrode was able to offer Framlingham postmaster Roger Tripp the use of part of his Bullstrodes and Framlingham toy shop premises in Bridge Street. Subsequently, the post office reopened in the shop in November. At the time, Mr Tripp said, I think we have done amazingly well in just over three weeks since the flood and we have got a presence back into town. We are delighted. We have had incredible support from the post office to achieve this. The town's railway in pub was also flooded but landlady Laura Robinson was able to reopen earlier than expected in December with the help of donations from family and friends, as well as a Just Giving appeal. The public meeting will feature a panel of representatives from the Environment Agency, County Council and Charity Suffolk Wildlife Trust. Significant improvements to greatly enhance key areas of a coastal town are set to be made after plans were approved. New fountains utilising the latest technology are set to be installed as part of a major seafront redevelopment in Lowestoft that includes outdoor gym stations, seating, a boulder climbing space and a new multi-use games area, MUGA, MUGA. A series of works to improve public realm spaces in the Royal Plain, Royal Green and the South key wharf areas of town as part of a wider seafront vision have been given the go-ahead. Plans centering around a new fountain installation in existing location at Royal Plain in Lowestoft including hard and soft landscape improvements with plantation and boulder features and lighting improvements were lodged with East Suffolk Council 
in August and voted on this week. These plans were submitted alongside new access routes and soft landscape improvements with the bespoke seating and outdoor gyms plus EPP courtyard improvements. A new play area, also Cycle Hub, to existing car park at Royal Green and hard and soft landscape improvements as Pocket Park at South Quay. A scheme submitted by agents, untitled Practice on behalf of the applicant, East Suffolk Council was discussed at a meeting of the Council's Planning Committee North in Lowestoft. With the Seafront Vision Project, one of five regeneration projects detailed within the town investment plan, which received £24.9 million from the Government Towns Fund. Planning officers recommended the approval of the proposed development for public realm works across the three areas in Lowestoft. Richard Best, project manager at East Suffolk Council, told councillors this project will deliver the replacement fountains to Royal Plain with the latest fountains technology. He added that a greatly enhanced destination place for the local community and visitors could be created. Councillor Andre G said it was a brilliant idea and that enriched the area was something for everybody provided. Councillor Toby Hammond added, this is going to be the centrepiece of the transformation of the seafront. The scheme was subsequently approved after a unanimous vote. New cafe complex revamp plans that will see a new cafe complex unveiled as part of a £4.9 million seafront vision have been given the go-ahead. Works centering around the third phase of improvements to reinvigorate Jubilee Parade were approved this week. The next phase of development is on the horizon for a Suffolk town centre, Greggs, previously named the fanciest in the UK, but work could take a year to complete. Emerson Marshall Critchley, who owns Emerson Critchley Limited, which specialises in restoring period properties, has begun work at the Bury St Edmunds Abbeygate Street Greggs store, with scaffolding first appearing on Thursday, November the 30th. Mr Marshall Critchley, who has worked in construction full-time since he was 14 and grew up in Bury St Edmunds, said initial exploratory work revealed the Grade 2 listed building has sustained a lot of rainwater ingress, which has caused damage to the structure. We've nearly finished the exploratory stage and we have found that the majority of the water ingress is due to rainwater, he said. We believe most of the damage caused to the front facade has been due to basically a downpipe, which wasn't connected and has obviously come loose. Other problems include moisture being drawn into the timber where it meets the pavement on the front, as well as guttering along the top knot properly being installed. Mr Marshall Critchley said the exploratory phase of the project will be coming to an end in the next couple of weeks, but the whole project could take a year or more to complete. Listed buildings consent applications will be submitted for the parts of the building that need fully replacing, which could take two to four months to come back, and repairs can begin as quickly as possible with conservation officer consent. I hope that this is going to be a good fix for probably a hundred years, but it does mean Greggs will need to maintain the painting and do regular checks, Mr Marshall Critchley said. This isn't going to be a quick fix, it's going to have to be done in stages. Of his passion for the project, he said, 
For me, it's about our heritage. It's an honour to be restoring the building in a way that will last for hundreds of years. If people weren't as passionate about our heritage as me, we wouldn't have anything left. We are able to break it down with clients, which is important. I have read some of the information that is written on Google and it is not always right. Anyone can post anything. Hopes that the new homes being built on the Ipswich Garden suburb would boost rail services at Westerfield station are unlikely to be realised for many years. At present, the station is served by all trains on the Felixstowe branch, but only a few peak hour services on the line between Ipswich and Lowestoft. It had been hoped that the development of up to 3,500 homes on the northern fringe of Ipswich could give a boost to the station which will be on the edge of the new district and should eventually have new footpaths and cycleways to it. But a survey of new homes has already occupied on the Henley Gate development. The first part of the suburb to have homes occupied attracted no response. The I do beg your pardon. Yes, the first part of the suburb to have homes occupied attracted no response. That was a disappointment for the East Suffolk Travellers Association, ESTA, which hopes to persuade Greater Anglia to stop more trains at the station. Nigel Wall edited the findings of the survey for ESTA and said they were encouraged that a large number of residents from the village itself would like to use the station more but were disappointed to get no response from any residents of the new development. He felt the lack of any footpaths or cycleways to the station could be a factor. Jonathan Denby from Greater Anglia said, changing timetables, even for a comparatively minor amendment, required a large amount of planning. He said the earliest this could happen would be 2025 to 2026. But to be honest, I think it would need to see clear evidence before we went ahead with this. The fact that the area nearest station will be the last to be development on the Ipswich Garden suburb means it might not reach its full potential until the mid-2030s, or possibly later, by which time there could be further changes made to the railway system. And now we'll move on to some letters. The first one is from William Wick. We should build roads fit for the future. In 1963, I was working at Atlas Works in Cullum Road, Bury St Edmunds. Then Cullum Road at that point, the road finished and a path went on across the butts. In 1972, Cullum Road was extended with a road going through the water meadows to the south of Bury. In those days, with no health and safety, at lunchtime we would walk the route to see what was going on. You could see logic straight away with the effort and cost to raise the road from the water meadows. 52 years later, how many times has this road been closed and we must use Southgate Street to get out of town? When the water meadows are flooded, the water always goes somewhere and the road remains usable. Whatever the cost, this road was built for the future of Bury St Edmunds. Dis, Thetford and Sudbury require good connections to the A14 at Bury, so there's no need to go through town. These towns like Bury have house building programmes going on, which over the next 10 years will add to the volume of traffic coming to Bury. 
Dis and Thetford have this connection. But not always Compain Way, A143, has become a joke and should be put to right whatever the costs. When you build a road at the bottom of a valley, not only do you have water coming down, but it also brings rubbish and debris. The road has not been raised and there's no ditch. It's like building a river at the bottom of a valley, which happens naturally over time and then plan to make it efficient with pumps. It's not a road for the future of Bury. The A134 from Sudbury should be a government-sponsored road with its own connection to the A14. This would be a plus for Bury, taking traffic away from Junction 44. The plan is to build a housing estate in Rushbrook Lane area with a road to the Ruffham Hill roundabout. This land was flooded in the 1968 floods. Where will the water flow from this estate's storms drains? To the Butts, the Water Meadows, Abbey Gardens, Eastgate Street, Fornham? If this housing estate was there in 1968, would it have been worse for Bury? Water has to go somewhere. They, mu they must get this right, and Compain Way is no advertisement. When this housing estate is complete, an HGV coming from Sudbury on the A134 will come to a new roundabout, close to Nowton Park. Will it be directed to go straight on, as now, to the Southgate Street roundabout, or turn right through the new housing estate and come out onto the Ruffham Hill roundabout? Will the roads on the new estate be to a high standard for all these HGVs? Southgate Street roundabout, Ruffham Hill roundabout, Junction 44 and their connecting roads are busy and getting worse. Will they have traffic lights on Ruffham Hill roundabout? With this new housing estate, with the extra traffic, will it take longer to get in and out of town? Will there be some effort for this section of road to have an upgrade so it is the future of Bury? Older people are starting to say, we saw the best of Bury St Edmunds. And my first letter is from Peter Gowers of Clopton Gardens, Hadley. Plan will only alienate traders and shoppers. Plans by Baber District Council to introduce a car parking charges would be devastating for our small towns. Rather than pay to use high street shops, customers would use out-of-town stores with free parking or clog up already congested side streets to avoid having to pay. Hadley is a small market town served by many small independent shops, all of which must be struggling with the effects of inflation and falling footfall, especially with partridges gone. Any measures which would reduce potential trade should be avoided, which is why this proposal is unwarranted, serving only to alienate traders and ratepayers. I would like to see a breakdown of the reported £425,000 that Baber District Council claims to be losing each year on its car parks, most of which I suspect is on machines, ticketing and policing. Why not do away with some of those costs by making the car parks completely free? Surely it cannot make economic sense to be spending money on introducing new systems Money that will take years to recuperate. Free and friendly car parking encourages local trade, is better for the environment and may well secure the future of Hadley trade for years to come. 
The next letter comes from Bob Darvell, Orchard Place in Sudbury, who says, I tip my hat to Laura for a job well done. A few years ago, I became aware of a problem on Blackfriars in Sudbury. It was reported, but no resolution was forthcoming. Recently, I contacted District Councillor Laura Smith. She returned my call the same day, made an appointment to meet me, which she attended, as promised, and was attentive, polite and understanding of the issue. Within two weeks, the problem was resolved. I do not wish to reveal the details of the issue, but Councillor Smith has saved the public a large sum of cash thanks to her intervention. This is exactly what the public needs at this time, councillors who are reliable and get things done. I tip my hat to Councillor Smith. And my next letter is from Jill Fisher, The Close Sudbury. And this happens to link to an article I read earlier. Sudbury's loss is very much Barry's gain. The departure of Deputy Town Clerk Jodie Budd is a sad loss for Sudbury. Like Andrew, Lord Phillips, also a loss to us. Jodie had the knowledge of all things planned and unplanned for Sudbury. She was someone to turn to when information on the past or present was needed. Whenever I needed help for any campaigning that I was involved in, Jodie always made herself available, never hiding behind locked doors and saying she was busy. There were no airs and graces with Jodie. I and others, I'm sure, wish her luck, well in her new role as town clerk in Bury St Edmunds. Sudbury's loss is very much Bury's gain. The next letter comes from Sarah Green from Bury St Edmunds that the town has lost so much over the past 20 years. It is a complete disgrace that Bury St Edmunds' precious amenities are being stripped out and diminished once again by the proposed closure of the Bury Record Office, thus losing this extremely important cultural asset and archive for West Suffolk and with very many documents specific to the history of Bury St Edmunds and the local area. The Bury Record Office must remain in Bury for the benefit of our community and visitors. It has attracted archivists, historians and researchers to the town for years who often stay and discover the further history and delights of this very historic market town, thus boosting our economy. We have lost too much over these past 20 or more years, which includes the Manor House Museum, housing the precious and best complete and unique clock collection outside of London, which was viewed by aspiring horologists and their students sent from Switzerland, the magistrates and crown courts, a proper bus station, and now reduced to a very diminished bus service. A once wonderful post office, not to mention the town's mayoralty and borough status. It's extraordinary and deeply regretted that a town with such housing growth and developments should now become a dormitory town to Ipswich and Cambridge, with just a reputation for coffee shops and eateries. Our much-loved town of Bury St Edmunds deserves better. And my next letter from Darren Phillips, Great Barton. A proper repair would make more sense. Readers may have become aware of comments in the press and elsewhere bemoaning how nothing seems to work very well in this country lately. Well, how's this for an example? 
Near our house in Great Barton, on the A143, there is an iron manhole cover in the road that keeps coming loose. This results in a very loud, annoying clang-clang noise every time a vehicle drives over it. Historically, a road gang is duly dispatched and the offending cover is relayed and the road surface patched up. The trouble is that the refurb only lasts for four weeks or so, and then the same thing happens again. Over the last few years, I estimate that it has come loose and been done up at least 10 or 12 times, probably more. As I write, the cover is again dislodged and clanging despite it only been four weeks since the last repair. I cannot understand how it can be so difficult to rectify this in a way that lasts. May I encourage the Highways Department to engage a very good chartered civil engineer to draw up a schedule of work so that the repair is carried out properly, as this surely makes more sense than this piecemeal bodge. The next letter comes from Doug Conran from Bury St Edmunds. Allowing new car park could solve a problem. There have recently been a number of letters in the Bury Free Press concerning the lack of parking spaces per permit in the grid part of the town. So much so that I understand some residents are reluctant to go out in their cars for fear of being unable to park on their return. Might I suggest a solution to this problem for both those residents of the grid and also for those who do not have access to off-street parking in those roads, immediately to the west of Parkway? There is a waste area bounded by Parkway and Everly Mews, where St Benedict's Lower School used to be, for which a planning application for a 269-space public car park has been submitted. So far, this has been turned down because of concerns about cars exiting the car park directly onto Parkway. If this car park were to be allocated as a residential, there would be far fewer car movements thus enabling cars to both enter and excess of Robert Bodie Way. It would significantly reduce the lottery of finding a parking space for residents who currently have no allocated car parking space. If charging points were to be installed, as per the application, it would provide those residents with the means to charge EVs, something that will become far more necessary the closer we get to 2035. With a bit of forethought, it should be possible to cover the parking spaces with solar panels, as is being done at the Babraham Park and ride in Cambridgeshire, which should go a long way towards meeting the energy requirements of the said EVs. With the push to mitigate climate change, this seems to me to be one way of achieving that which will be to the benefit of everyone. St Edmundsbury Cathedral have unveiled a new product in the cathedral shop. Honey collected from beehives on the cathedral roof. Four hives are situated on the historic cathedral. From this vantage point, the bees forage through the beautiful abbey gardens and historic ruins of the abbey of St Edmund, just as the bees of Benedictine monks would have done in the medieval times. Honey bees have an average foraging radius of two to three miles, so the flavour and colour of the honey they produce depends on the type of flowers from which the bees gather nectar. 
The specific floral makeup of the honey changes from season to season, but it is usually a very dark, rich colour. Nectar harvested from native trees, the multi-floral gardens and local agricultural fields combine to give this honey a complex caramel taste, which finishes in an almost molasses mouthfeel with well-balanced sweetness. The honey is harvested late in the season to ensure the bees have had access to the widest possible array of flora. flora. It is carried down narrow stone steps and then spun out of the frames before being put into jars. At no stage is the honey fine filtered or heated above 35 degrees Celsius, the temperature inside the beehive so that it goes into the jars with all the pollen enzymes and antimicrobial goodness still intact, and to give a real taste of the cathedral and its environs. There are two types of honey available to customers, runny and soft set, to allow spreading, dipping, spooning, drizzling, and everything in between. Enterprises retail manager Jane Harrison said, We are very pleased to be launching Cathedral Honey, to have a product for sale in the shop which is made only a few hundred metres from where it is sold is quite unique. I know it will be a big hit with local residents and members of the cathedral community who will enjoy the idea of bees producing honey on top of our very own cathedral roof. Jars of honey can be purchased for just eight ninety nine from the cathedral shop and make a brilliant gifts. The kitchen is the hub of the home, the hardest working space and probably the place where, use, where we use more plastic than we should or could. If you're looking to make a conscious effort to reduce the amount of plastic in your home, then the new year is the perfect time to start this journey, says Ruth Lavender. The kitchen is one of the simplest places to start reducing your plastic usage and there are lots of great alternatives available to help you cut down. To kickstart your plastic-free lifestyle, experts share their top tips to put into practice now. Chopping boards. When choosing chopping boards, Ruth says, to opt for wood instead of plastic. Not only are they better for the environment, as they're made from a renewable, biodegradable material, but wooden boards are known for their durability and longevity. Wooden options can withstand the impact of sharp knives without excessive damage and with care and maintenance can last for many years. Utensils. The next time you need to replace your plastic utensils, Ruth says to opt for wooden spatulas and spoons instead. This is an easy swap to make and by investing in high quality utensils, you will avoid needing to replace them as frequently. Wooden utensils also have their own added benefits, she adds. They have natural antibacterial properties that make it easier to eliminate germs and bacteria, making them more sanitary and safer to use. Storage. Aesthetically pleasing, well-organised kitchen cupboards are a real joy to live with, enthuses Ruth. When organising your cupboards, she recommends highly investing in quality bamboo and glass storage solutions to limit the amount of plastic in your kitchen. Using glass jars and containers to contain decanted dried goods such as pasta and rice will add an orderly look as well as helping you locate items you need when you need them, says Ruth. Incorporating wooden crates or baskets is a great solution for vegetable storage 
as well as keeping food items grouped together. A bamboo fruit bowl is another easy swap and looks great when stocked with fresh produce. Beeswax wraps. Ruth says beeswax wraps are the perfect alternative to cling film and plastic food bags. Not only is this material reusable and biodegradable, but it provides a natural way to preserve food, keeping it fresher for longer. Paper towels. Dr. Elisa Foster, Head of Sustainability at Who Gives a Crap, suggests switching to planet-friendly paper towels. Not only is it wrapped in plastic, traditional kitchen roll is also single-use, which means non-recycled options also lead to deforestation. Instead, she says, you can opt for reusable and washable paper towel alternatives. But just be sure to choose plastic-free cloths. Switch up your sponges. Ditch the plastic and opt for plant-based scourers and sponges. Or bamboo scrubbing brushes for an easy win. And finally, bulk buy. Cut down on plastic by switching up to bulk buys. This doesn't need to be just food. Cleaning products, pet food and tissues can all be bought in bulk. Ah. Well, we are coming to the end of this edition of St Edmund's Free News Talk. So if you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, please use the phone number on the pink sheet which you have been given. Alternatively, you can put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We would like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Berry Free Press, East Anglian Daily Times, Haverhill Echo and Newmarket Journal, from whose pages most of our items have been taken. News Talk will be back again next week, so until then, from Peter, Jane and myself, Graham, it's goodbye. listening to a podcast brought to you by the St Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St Edmunds studio. Thank you.